I do have quite a lot that I'm going to try to fit in this morning. In the limited opportunities that I've had to teach, I've always found that I tend to be very wordy. So um, I've always ended up going over time, so I'm going to try very hard not to do that today. Um, but why don't we go ahead and jump right in, if you don't mind, to pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Thank you for your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. I thank you for um, the fact that you sustain us every day. Um, I thank you that you have given us your word that we can um, be convicted of our sin, that we can walk in obedience and know who you are from your word. And so I pray that as we look at your word um, now, that you would um, give us humble hearts, that we would um, come before you just with a desire to give you greater glory in our lives. I pray that you would help me to be able to communicate clearly, um, to formulate my thoughts clearly, and I pray that you will be honored and glorified in um, everything that we do this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Do I need to adjust this? <laughs> I can hear it crackling. <clears throat> test, test, test. Is that better? Not crackling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, all breathing, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll try. Is that better? Okay. <laughs> okay. On a Friday evening, a young couple moved into a new neighborhood. The next morning, in their new home while they were eating breakfast, the young woman glanced out her window to see her neighbor hanging the wash outside. That laundry is not very clean, she said. I bet she doesn't know how to wash it correctly. It looks like she buys the cheap laundry detergent. Her husband looked on but remained silent. For the next month, every time her neighbor would hang her wash to dry, the young woman would make similar comments. She really must be too lazy to scrub her clothes well. Look at all those stains. Does she go out in public in those clothes? Her poor husband must be ashamed. Her children must be grubby little creatures too. One Saturday morning, however, the young woman rose and came to breakfast late, and as soon as she sat down, she was surprised to find that the wash on the line was spotless and immaculately clean. She immediately turned to her husband and said, look, the woman has actually learned how to wash her clothes. She must have had a change of heart. The husband said, oh, I got up early this morning and finally washed our windows. <clears throat> Now, obviously, this little narrative is supposed to make us chuckle, and the secret to its humor is how easily we can relate to the young woman who was making assumptions and passing judgments on her neighbor, and then, of course, expressing her vehement displeasure to her husband. Uh, we laugh because the humor of this story plays off of a small, or maybe not so small, corner in most, if not all, of our hearts, where we like to keep a record of what we deem are wrongs that we have observed in others or have been dealt by them. 
there is a certain puffing up of our pride that we enjoy when we review and add notes to this ever-growing record. And we may even take secret enjoyment in sometimes sharing its contents with others so that they may agree with us over the wrongs that we have recorded. Not surprisingly, Scripture has a name for this kind of proud attentiveness to the wrongs of others. It is called judging with sinful motives. And the boastful repetition of this information to others is called slander. And yes, you guessed it. We are going to be discussing the sins of slander and judging this morning and the implications that they have for our relationships with God and with one another. What we will consider today is that while we may be aware that slandering and judging others is sinful, we perhaps have not considered to the fullest extent how prevalent these sins are in our own hearts and minds, how they are expressed in our lives, and how defiantly they dishonor the Lord. Chiefly motivated by pride, the sins of slander and judging are destructive to our spiritual family. They strike at the authority of the law of God, and they bitterly oppose the authority of God himself in judgment. Consequently, our response must be to rigorously uproot these sins from our hearts by pursuing humility before God, the true righteous judge, and pursuing Christ-like love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, if you could please turn with me to James chapter 4. I'm going to be uh, reading from verse 6 to verse 12, um, although we are going to be focusing on verses 11, 12. Um, but I want to start in verse 6 just to give us a little bit of context. James 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace... Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, <clears throat> miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, one another brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges, <clears throat> excuse me, judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So we are going to jump right onto our outline. Our first point is James's 10th commandment. The passage that we are studying this morning, um, verses 11 and 12, fall at the end of a list that James gives us, a list of applications or commands for those who would seek to reject pride and humble themselves before God. So these verses of 11 and 12 have sometimes been referred to as James's 10th commandment because he gives um, nine imperatives before that. So we have submit therefore to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, 
cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be miserable, uh, mourn and weep and humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And then he says, do not speak against one another, which is letter A on your outline. When James says, do not speak against one another, he is expressing absolute denial, denying even the thought of speaking against one another. This kind of sinful speech was already occurring in the lives of the believers that he was writing to in their churches, as it often does in our churches today. And James is writing this command to put an end to this kind of sinful speech. The word for speak against, which is kataleleo, um, means to criminate or accuse of a crime, to condemn or censure or slander, um, which is to speak badly or deceitfully about someone. So we have our next point, to speak against someone is to slander them. The uh, KJV in, um, translates this as to speak evil about someone. The idea is simply that you're coming against someone with your words. Um, and it is translated as slander in other passages in the New Testament as well. So based on my own study, um, looking at other passages and looking at definitions in the original language, um, I have formulated a biblical definition here for speaking against someone. To speak against someone means to verbally make them out to be evil. It is to accuse them so that they might be criticized by others. The slanderer is maliciously motivated, whether by pride or hatred, uh, desiring to improve her own standing in the eyes of those listening by condemning the person in question and damaging their reputation. Clearly, speaking against a brother or sister in Christ is sinful, not only because James is forbidding it here in this passage, but also because it is decidedly and repeatedly condemned elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Mark 7 um, verse 21 and 22, um, Jesus is giving a list of the sins that proceed out of our hearts. He says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. And in this list, he says, deceit, slander, and pride, among other things. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then similarly, Colossians 3.8, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Although slander ought to be far removed from our speech, it is adamantly um, prohibited in scripture because it is so commonly committed among believers. While our methods and modes of slander may be a little bit more polished within the church, they are no less frequent. John MacArthur says, not only is slander a devastating sin, it is also a ubiquitous one. While other sins require a particular set of circumstances before they can be committed, slander only needs a malicious tongue driven by hatred. Because it is easy to commit, slander is widespread and almost inescapable. 
Most likely, we have all sinned by slandering someone else in one form or another. Our slander may be implied rather than blatantly stated, because of course we know we're not supposed to just blatantly slander someone. Um, But it may be um, indicated by only a knowing look or a particular inflection of our voice. But nevertheless, our slander is no less ugly, offensive to God, and harmful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are not motivated by love for our brother and by love for those to whom we speak, our words about the brother will only cause division and dissension for for all parties involved. Stephen Davey adds, part of the problem is that most Christians believe it's okay to say something derogatory about someone else as long as it's true. If it's true, it isn't gossip. If it's true, it's not slander. If it's true, everyone in the assembly needs to be aware of it. We have come to believe that it is almost a moral obligation to pass along information about someone else as long as it is true no matter what it does to that person's character or reputation. Regardless of how our slander is expressed, we are on a path to destroy the unity of our spiritual family within the body of Christ by speaking against others with our words. So our next point, letter B, slander is a sin against my spiritual family. When James gives this command, do not speak against one another, brethren, um, he's using familial language here. First, the use of one another indicates that it is something that the believers were doing to each other. It wasn't just one party against another. Uh, Remember that this is a sin that we've almost likely committed against each other. There are no innocent parties here. Yet, slander is the exact opposite of God's plan for his children when they relate to one another. Remember, we've been given so many commands throughout the New Testament for how we are to relate to one another, how we are to respond to one another. We've been commanded in John 13, 34 to love one another as Christ has loved us to, uh, in Romans 14, 19, pursue the things that, would, um, that make for peace and the building up of w- one another. Romans 15, 7, we are commanded to accept one another. Ephesians 4, show tolerance for one another. Uh, Philippians 2, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Colossians 3, bear one another and forgive each other. And then James 5, do not complain against one another. James then follows up this phrase of one another with the word brethren. And of course, we read this as James's expression of his own deep affection for these believers that he's writing to. But it almost seems as if he is also reminding them of who they are to each other. He's drawing attention to the spiritual relationship that they share and that they had apparently forgotten. In the same way, we must carefully consider who it is that we sin against when we slander other believers. This is our spiritual family, our spiritual brothers and sisters joined together with a bond that is stronger than even our physical family on earth. 
because we have a mutual salvation through Christ, um, we are mutually serving God together, and we all are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 15 reminds us that we are individually members of one another. And Galatians 3, 28 tells us that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Matthew Henry um, explains what the implication then is of how we should respond to one another, one another. He says, since Christians are brethren, they should not defile or defame one another. It is required of us that we be tender of the good name of our brethren. Where we cannot speak well, we had better say nothing than speak evil. We must not take pleasure in making known the faults of others, divulging things that are secret merely to expose them, nor in making more of their known faults than they really deserve, and least of all in making false stories and spreading things concerning them of which they are altogether innocent. Slander against our spiritual family then is not without its consequences, of course. Speaking against our brothers and sisters in Christ will surely set us on a path to greater and deeper sin. Because of this fact, James is now going to move into a warning for those who, who slander um, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's going to divulge to us the eventual destination that the sin of slander inevitably leads to. So number two on your outline is James's warning. And then we have a dismal description. James begins his warning by identifying the person that the warning is meant for. Um, he does this by describing the sins that they commit and that they are guilty of. The first, of course, is that he's pointing out this is for people who slander. So he says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. So we have a new concept here that James is adding into um, the uh, list of sins that he's providing us with. Um, so we want to know, what does it mean for us to judge a brother? And why is James bringing these two things together? Are they related? So we're going to kind of dive in and consider this a little bit. The word for judge is krino, which means to call into question, to decide or determine uh, by implication to condemn, punish, or sentence. And of course, we know that we make judgments all day of these kind, um, these, this kind of judgment where we are deciding things, we're determining things. Even just this morning, we decided what we were going to wear or, um, you know, if we were going to stop and get gas or what we were going to do. We make judgments and decisions all day long. But this particular type of judgment that James is referring to is a sin against God. And I'm going to get into why that is. So the biblical definition that, again, I formulated based on my study and looking at other passages, um, to judge someone is, at the very least, to mentally or verbally call their words and act actions into question. It is to make 
a negative determination about the person and subject them to condemnation. This kind of judgment is sinfully motivated. It is often hypocritical in nature, and it is an affront to God, the true righteous judge. Slander and judging are, in fact, closely related sins because they both involve passing condemnation upon others. While judging may not always involve slander, because slander is a verbal sin, it starts with our tongue, um, slander always begins with sinful judgment. Slander is something that we commit with our words, whereas judgment begins in the heart and is often committed in our minds. And it may be, um, it may just stay in our minds. Sometimes we speak it or sometimes we may not, but it is um, thoughts against someone else that is sinful, that are sinful. Even if we don't verbally express our sinful judgment towards others, I think I can argue that our judgment will still always be expressed towards the person that we are judging in some way or another. Whether because you know the um, the act of judging is lacking in love in and of itself, it is a sinful action against them, and so we are prevented from loving them in the way that we ought to. <clears throat> John uh, John MacArthur says, the first step in avoiding the sin of slander is not keeping one's lips sealed, but keeping one's thoughts about others right. So the um, the first step that we have to take if we are going to be overcoming the sin of slander in our lives is we have to back it up from our mouth. We have to back it up to our mind and to our hearts to uproot the origin of this sin. This kind of sinful judgment is prohibited multiple times throughout scripture. Luke 6.37 says, do not judge. It's pretty simple. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Romans 14.12-13 So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, I want to be able to dive in deeper and discuss uh, the practical ways that uh, sinful judging expresses itself. But before we can do that, We need to make a distinction here because like I said, we do make judgments all day, every day, and there are actually types of judgments in scripture that we are commanded to make. Uh, So we need to make a distinction here between sinful judgment and righteous judgment. The judging that James is talking about in chapter four is sinful and not righteous judgment. It is clear from scripture that believers are called to exercise their judgment in a variety of ways for a variety of reasons. But the motive behind these instances of judgment is always to give glory to God by obeying his word and building up the body of Christ. As we'll see, it's the motive behind the judgment that makes that distinction of whether it is sinful or whether it is righteous. 
John 7, 24 commands us, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So I'm going to give you some examples of righteous judgment um, that we are commanded to have in Scripture. Um, one example is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, where it tells us to examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. This is a regular practice that we should have is examining our own hearts. And of course, we know that. We, we examine our hearts to, um, to be convicted and to be recognized of our own sins so that we can grow in greater holiness. Another example, we are to judge false teachers, which we find in Matthew 7.15. We are to show others their sin and to practice church discipline, which we find in Matthew 18. We know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable uh, for reproving, correcting, training. Um, these are all um, actions of discernment or of judging that we are making in our own lives and also in, for the lives of others. We are commanded in Hebrews 5.14 to be discerning between good and evil. And then 1 Corinthians 2.13 tells us to appraise all things. So the implication here, as Douglas Moo tells us, is that James is not prohibiting in this passage that we're studying, he's not prohibiting the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise, nor is he forbidding the right of the Christian community to exclude from its fellowship those it deems to be in flagrant disobedience to the standards of the faith or to determine right and wrong among its members. Stephen Davey adds to this. He says, what James is forbidding here is having a judgmental attitude that is a critical spirit that judges everyone and everything and runs everyone down. There's a difference between making a discerning judgment and having a judgmental spirit. There's a difference between thinking critically and being critical. The issue isn't whether you judge, but how and why you judge. So what ultimately sets righteous judgment apart from sinful judgment is the underlying motive of the heart. Righteous judgment is motivated by a desire to glorify God, to obey scripture and his commands, and to love his people. It is executed in a way that is biblical and edifying to others. Righteous judgment of another person will have at its root a desire for them to grow in holiness and in their love of Christ. Unrighteous judgment, on the other hand, is motivated by sin, most particularly pride and self-righteousness. So letter B, your next point, is the motive of sinful judging. Jerry Bridges told us in our chapter for this week, that the sin of judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins. And I would agree with that. As I have been seeking to apply this to my own life, I have found it difficult to identify because it hides behind our pride and our self-righteousness. Um, but he says, is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it is often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what is right. 
That's where the trouble with judgmentalism begins. We equate our opinion with the truth. Sinful judgment originates from a high opinion of oneself, which presumes that it perfectly adheres to what is right, while others stray like sheep into what is wrong. Rather than leaning upon the standard of scripture as the truth, as does righteous judgment, sinful judging, which we will get into this a little bit more later, but sinful judging creates its own standard for what it believes is true and what is right and wrong. In grave self-righteousness, sinful judging maintains its high self-esteem by its own standard, failing to acknowledge its own shortcomings, yet delighting to highlight the failures of others to live up to its standard. While congratulating itself for possessing such wisdom and insight and understanding and intuition, common sense or intelligence, sinful judging is in fact devoid of Christ-like love and grace towards others, as well as wisdom and understanding and all those things. So we want to get into now the practical um, outworking of our sinful judging and what this may look like in our own hearts and lives. So I think, I don't think I said this already. Um, The next point is the practice of sinful judging. Because sinful judging is devoid of Christ-like love, It is the instigator of all kinds of unloving thoughts toward other people out of a personal disapproval of something that they did or did not do, something that they said or did not say. So I have put together here a list of 10 ways that sinful judgment may manifest itself. Um, This list I pulled a lot from my own struggles with judging. Um, I, I have really been working to uproot anger in my life as well, and I have found that these are closely related. Um, so this list that I have is pulling from that. It's also just very, very closely related to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, as we were, as I was looking just at the characteristics of love there and just seeing how judging is not any of those things. Um, also this list is not meant to be exhausted, uh, exhaustive, but, um, this is just some examples, some ways that maybe we can evaluate in our own hearts if this is how judging may manifest itself. So these are not on your outline, but if you want to, you can scribble on the back or whatever you want to do. First, judging is not kind toward others. As much as in our self-righteousness, we may believe that we are doing the right thing and making the right call and making the right judgment. Um, it is not beneficial to the person we are judging. It is not kind towards them. And rather, it is the entertainer of unkind thoughts toward others. Second, judging is not patient toward others, but rather relishes in a victim mentality when it perceives that it has been wronged. Number three, judging may be motivated by jealousy. This is one of the motivations that could come along with judging. 
Jealous judging tempts us to magnify the faults in others in order to justify our own covetousness and the opinion that we are more deserving of the thing we desire than they. Number four, judging may act unbecomingly toward the target of its judgments. Its conduct toward the person that it is judging may range from simply being unfriendly, not reaching out to them in love, um, to outbursts of anger and accusations. Number five, judging secretly enjoys the swell of pride that results from criticizing others. This is ultimately the purpose that sinful judging uh, serves in our hearts, is that it puffs us up in our pride. Number six, judging may choose to dwell on negative facts about a person that are even true, but rather than grieving over the appearance of sin in another's life, it pockets this information while gloating that I myself am above such sinfulness. Number seven, judging revels in a record of wrongs and may be expressed in bitterness and an unwillingness to forgive when it has judged a person to be unforgivable. The worse the offense of the other person, the more satisfying the rush of self-righteous pride. Judging is often blind, this is number eight, often blind to the positive improvements and measures of growth in others. Number nine, judging is often blind to its own sins, failures, and need for growth, especially in the areas that it judges most in others. And then number 10, judging does not believe the best of others, but rather assumes that it understands their thoughts, emotions, and motives, and it concludes that they are sinful. Jerry Bridges uh, continues, and he brings this home for us a little bit. He takes the sin of judging a little bit further. He says, most of us can slip into the sin of judgmentalism from time to time, but there are those among us who practice it continually. These people have what I call a critical spirit. This is Jerry Bridges speaking. They look for and find fault with everyone and everything. A critical spirit is sinful judging that is primed and ready. We talked about this a lot in our small group, my small group um, last week. when We were talking about anger being just under the surface and being primed and ready. Um, in the same way, when we have a critical spirit, it is sinful judging that is primed and ready and looking for those opportunities to judge someone else. Um, so in one of the commentaries that I was reading, uh, by Stephen Davey, he quoted a Greek theologian named, I don't know how to say this, uh, Spiros Zodiatis. That's what I think it is. I don't know. Um, and Spiros gives us kind of a description um, of the thought process of a person with a critical spirit who is thinking about someone else. I hope that makes sense. So he says, from the perspective of the critical person, If he was a poor man, then he was a poor manager. If he was rich, then he was dishonest. If he needed credit, it was because he couldn't get it. If he had plenty of credit, everyone wanted to do him a favor. 
If he was in politics, it was for personal gain. If he stepped out of offices, he was no good for his country. If he didn't give to charitable causes, he was stingy. If he did, it was for show. If he regularly attended church, he was just another hypocrite. But if he wasn't interested in church, he was a terrible sinner. If he showed compassion, he was too soft. But if he didn't show compassion, he was too cold. If he died young, well, he missed a great future ahead of him. And if he died old, well, he probably missed his calling. Um, this sounds a little bit over the top um, because we don't tend to have these thoughts all in a string and in a line like this. Um, but Stephen Davey takes this quote, and like I said, he, he brings this home. He said, this kind of person actually looks back at us in the mirror every morning. We are all guilty to one degree or another. This is for us all. While we may not put all of our judgmental thoughts into one paragraph like that, um, I know for myself, if I took my judgmental thoughts at the end of the day, it would easily fill a paragraph. And I've just recognized even for myself just how prevalent this is in my own thoughts. I've just continually caught myself over and over and over again, just trying to rein in these thoughts that are unkind towards other people. <clears throat> so continuing on with James's warning that he is giving us, he started with this dismal description. So we've explored... Um, what it means to slander and how that expresses itself, what it means to judge and how that expresses itself. And now James is going to give us um, e an equation. He's going to tell us, um, or really he's going to draw a parallel between this person who is sinning and what the consequences or the implications of their sin actually are. So uh, letter B is an egregious equation. <clears throat> the equation he gives us is that one who speaks against the law and judges the, or sorry, he who speaks against a brother and judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. These are simultaneous actions that are being committed. So your next point there is slandering or judging a brother equals slandering and judging the law. Now, when I first read this, the meaning of it did not immediately present itself to me. So I had to meditate and study a little bit more to understand what this meant and to, to understand how this even works. Um, how is it that when I'm judging someone else, I'm also judging the law? Well, first we have to understand what law he's talking about. The word he uses here is just the general Greek word to refer to any sort of law. Um, but James does use this same term in a few other places in his letter. He refers to it as the perfect law in uh, chapter 1, verse 25, the law of liberty in chapter 1, or that would be chapter 2, verse 12, and then he calls it the royal law in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which is what we're going to focus on here. Um, so broadly speaking, James seems to be indicating all of God's laws given to believers under the new covenant. Um, but more specifically, Stephen Davey particularly argues that James, 
when he talks about judging the law here is referring back to the royal law that he um, referred to in chapter 2, verse 8, which says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, we know from Galatians 5.14 that the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is the, the primary law that we're going to be considering here, um, which judging another person is disobeying. It's disobeying this law. <clears throat> so when we slander and judge someone else, we are simultaneously slandering and judging this law of love. So how is this accomplished? Because God has strictly prohibited slandering in his law for us, to disobey this command is to deny the very authority of this law in our lives. And by this denial, we slander the law, demonstrating by our actions that it actually holds no weight and has no value in our minds. So number two is, as if the law has no authority, meaning that we are slandering the law as if it has no authority. John MacArthur says, since slander is a violation of the law of love, a slanderer speaks against the law and condemns the law, thus showing utter disregard for the divine standard. The unimaginable implication of this is that the one who disregards God's law, in effect, claims to be superior to the law of God, not to be bound by it or to be subject to its authority. By such fearful disrespect, the sinner judges the law as unworthy of his attention, affection, obedience, submission, all of which is blasphemy against God. Douglas Moo summarizes this. He says, however high and orthodox our view of God's law might be, a failure to do it says to the world that we do not, in fact, put much store by it. Now, when we are slandering others, that is disregarding the authority of the law. But when we judge others, this is to take that disrespect to the next level. Number three, as if the law is subject to our authority. <clears throat> Judging others not only demonstrates a scorn for the law of God by acting outside of it, but at the same time, we also claim to be the judge of the law itself. This is because when we judge others, we are not only setting up a standard for ourselves, for which commands we will obey or will not obey, but we also subject the law to our own judgment by deciding which laws should apply to others so that they may be condemned for their, their disobedience in our own opinion. Number four, the wrong standard. This is the wrong standard, of course, that we are making our judgments by. Clearly, by subjecting the law to our own authority, we have actually abandoned the true law completely in favor of creating our own standard by which we measure ourselves and others. This we do so that we may excuse our own actions while simultaneously criticizing the actions of others. 
<clears throat> this standard for ourselves is referred to in Matthew 7, 1 through 2, which we are familiar with. It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way in which you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This should cause us to fear greatly. What standard are we holding others to that we are unwilling to hold ourselves to? Um, what standard would we never desire to be held to ourselves that we are placing upon other people in our minds? To be in this position of judging the law of God is a perilous position to be in. That's our next point. Thus far, um, in his warning, James has only delivered bad news for those who slander and judge, and it only gets worse. For the believer, this final piece of James's warning should cause us to mourn and hate our sins of slander and judging. When we actively engage in these sins, we place ourselves in great spiritual danger in more ways than one. We place ourselves in a perilous position which is that we are no longer doers of the law, but judges of it. So our next point there, not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. <clears throat> by slandering and judging others, and by slandering and judging the law, we have eradicated any hope of being a doer of the law. Being a judge of the law and a doer of the law are mutually exclusive identities. It is an issue of humbling oneself under the hand of God and his decrees and demands. If I have raised myself up to be a judge of God's law, then I can no longer be obedient to it since I've disregarded its authority over my life. Conversely, if I'm seeking to be a doer of the law, I will not question its authority, but willingly surrender myself to its statutes and conform my entire life to its standard. Matthew Henry says that to judge the law is a heinous evil because it is to forget our place, that we ought to be doers of the law. He who is guilty of the sin here cautioned against assumes an office in a place that does not belong to him, and he will be sure to suffer for his presumption in the end. Those who are most ready to set up for judges of the law generally fail most in their obedience to it. This is the climax of James's warning to us. As with all sin, engaging in unrepentant disobedience to God's commands constitutes a complete abandonment of any pursuit of obedience. And in this abandonment, spiritual dangers abound. Namely, by rejecting God's law, we remove ourselves from its power to convict us of sin, thereby effectually blinding ourselves to our own sin. Yeah. By rejecting God's law, we remove ourselves from its power to convict us of sin, thereby effectually blinding ourselves to our own sin. The next step, when we are blinded by our sin, and yet are continually slandering and judging others, is that we are inevitably practicing hypocrites. 
this is what Matthew 7, 3, verse five, 3 through 5 was referring to. We, you know, we've read this passage over and over again. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is something that I have, again, I found this to be so true in my own heart as I have been convicted of judging. I think of, um, Trey and I live in an apartment, and both of our neighbors on either side of us have been loud in different ways. Our, one of them um, fosters dogs, and so their, bo- their dogs are barking all the time. Um, and then the, uh, the one on the other side will sometimes turn their music up really loud at like 4.30 in the morning. Um, and so it is, it's been easy and frequent for me to express how displeased I am over these things. Um, and just, you know, thinking thoughts of, oh, they're so inconsiderate and all these things. But then I think about the fact that I have a one-year-old who will sometimes scream in his crib and who likes to pull out all the pots and pans in the kitchen. And Trey and I like to listen to music and we like to watch our movies. And so we make plenty of noise ourselves. Um, so like just thinking of this, this hypocrisy that just, um, functions so easily in my own heart. I know that I have judged other people for what I think is gluttony. And then I have turned around and recognized that I have a very weak spot for ice cream. And I don't often uh, control myself when it's just sitting in the freezer. I have judged other people for laziness and then recognized that I give myself a break. I like to just scroll social media when I feel like it, when I feel, you know, when I'm not depending on the Lord for my energy and I think that I just need a break from this day. Um, This has just been um, very helpful for me to open up my eyes to see my own hypocrisy and the judging that I um, regularly indulge in. Um. Another part of the danger of being in this position of judging the law is scripture is clear. Those who judge will be judged themselves. Matthew 7 again. Do not be judged so that you will not be judged. Romans 2 says, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Know that although we may set ourselves up as judges of the law in our own heart and mind, this does not change the authority of the law over us or our accountability to it ultimately. God's law is not negated. It does not change. It will remain forever. And those who judge sinfully will ultimately be judged by it in the end. With this knowledge, we ought to run as fast as we can away from such sinfulness. We ought to dig into our hearts to locate even the tiniest fraction of slander and judging so that we can destroy it out of a love for God and for our fellow believers. So the final part of James's, um, or the passage in James here, is a comparison that he's going to give to us, which is, just going to remove 
all slanderers and false judges from the judgment seat and put them in their rightful place, which is to be humbly prostrated before the throne of God. So James reminds us who it is who actually sits on the throne. So that's letter A, the one on the throne under James's comparison. There is only one who truly possesses the right to judge all living things. Regardless of my feeble attempts to make myself a judge of my fellow believer, my wickedness has no power to unseat the judge. God does not share his right to dictate the fate of those who obey or disobey the law. Proverbs 19.21 confirms this when it says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. James here refers to the one on the throne, God, as the lawgiver and judge. Lawgiver is derived from two words. The first is our normal word for law that we talked about before. And the second word means to put or place, to set forth, establish, fix. Um, So the the meaning here of lawgiver that he, um, well, essentially he's saying God is the only law maker. He's the only law establisher, the only law ordainer. Although we create our own standard for ourselves and others, when we judge sinfully, our standard is meaningless because we have no power to put everlasting law into place like God does. This power is reserved for God alone. If I have presumed to make myself a judge, then I have only made myself an enemy to God, who is the only lawgiver. John MacArthur says, the sin of slander, James warns, is no trivial matter. It is a brazen, it is brazen, reckless treason against the sovereign lawgiver and judge of the universe. To control the sin of slander, we must recognize the seriousness of sinning against the supreme lawgiver and judge. So we're going to look at the true power of God as the lawgiver. James describes this by saying that um, he is the one who is able to save and to destroy. So God's power is comprehensive in scope. It is absolutely, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's absolutely set. Like there's nothing that can change it. And it is, um, it covers all the bases of, of every offense that someone might commit He has the right and the power to determine if he will save them by grace or if he will punish them for their unrepentance. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Number two is ultimate authority. Because, because God is the lawgiver and he is the one who has put the law in place, he possesses the ultimate authority to enforce it. And not only this, but he is the creator and sustainer of every single person from conception until death. He alone possesses every right to judge his own creation according to his own law. Number three is unstoppable decree. Furthermore, the arm of God cannot be thwarted when he has made his decree of judgment. 
Whether the sentence is for salvation or destruction, there is none who can stop his judgments when they have been made. Number four is perfect knowledge. Finally, every judgment of God is perfect and just because he alone possesses comprehensive knowledge of all the deeds, desires, and motives of the hearts of his creatures. So often when we are judging, we assume that we know and we understand the motives and the desires and the emotions of other people. But this is a realm that is completely closed to us. We have no ability to see this in another person's heart. But yet Jeremiah seventeen twenty says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind and even give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. So James really um, puts the final nail in the coffin here with his comparison. He's, he's told us this is who God is. This is who is on the throne. And then he says, who are you? So not, uh, letter B is the arrogant usurper. That is the description of us when we are slandering and judging um, other people. This is indeed the question. Who are we to make ourselves judges of others, to stand above the law, to judge it, or to supplant the true judge? The answer is that we are nothing and possess nothing in comparison to the power of God. We are merely arrogant, wannabe usurpers of God's throne. This um, usurper personality Um, or action when we are slandering and judging is characterized by presumptuous pride. John MacArthur even likens this pride to that of Satan himself. He says, by placing himself above the law, the slanderer attempts to place himself above the only true lawgiver and judge, God himself. Such folly places the sinner on par with Satan who sought to unsuccessfully or who sought unsuccessfully to usurp God's throne. <clears throat> Finally, James says, "Who are you to judge your neighbor?" And this is interesting because previously he was referring to those whom we judge as our brothers, as our brothers and sisters in Christ. But now he switches to this neighbor, which is a much broader word to refer to anyone who is in close vicinity to us. So this judgment that we commit has a superiority problem. We are um, in our pride, in our self-righteousness, We believe that we are superior to everyone we come into contact with and that we are at liberty to cast judgment here and there as we please and to slander those who displease us. So in light of all these things, in light of James's warning and his comparison, what is our response to the recognition of our sinful slander and judging? We must renounce our former attempts to seize the position of God as judge in humble repentance. We must remove ourselves from the judge's bench in the court of our imagining and pursuit, uh, pursue obedience to the law of God. So lastly on your outline, number four is removing ourselves from the judge's bench. So I'm going to give us a few ways here um, 
few means of application for us to put off this sin of judging and slander and to put on obedience to scripture. So the first uh, letter A is to repent of slander and sinful judgment. We ought to have the same attitude as Job when he had essentially come to judge God for all this calamity that God had allowed to happen to him. He had questioned God's goodness, and then God comes after him and reminds him that Job is nothing, just as we are nothing. And God says, were you there? Were you there when you there? Were you there when I was creating these things? And um, it's a very long description um, of just the, the might and the power of God. And at the end of that, Job says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Letter B is we pursue humility. Just like um, James has already been counseling these believers in that the whole passage that we read at the very beginning, these commands that James is giving to us are applications for seeking humility. So I'm going to read these verses again, um, chapter 4, verses 6 and 10. He says, but God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And this is just a comfort to us that if we recognize this slander and this judgment that we have committed against God and against our spiritual family, if we humble ourselves and repent, God is gracious and he will look to us to grant forgiveness. Letter C is we practice love. Just like I was referring to um, 1 Corinthians 13, if we will seek to put on these characteristics, um, that love is patient and kind, it is not jealous, it does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. If we will put on all these characteristics and actively pursue them, then these sins of slandering and judging will automatically be displaced by these actions of love as we exercise them. I'm just thinking back to, you know, my neighbors. Um, the, the neighbors on the one side with the noisy dogs, um, they're a lesbian couple that lives there. And perhaps if I expressed my love to them, I would be more concerned about sharing the gospel with them. Um, that's so silly. Just because I'm in front of you guys. Um, I would be more concerned with loving them and expressing um, the character of Christ toward them rather than just being displeased um, over something so silly as noise <laughs> during the day. Um, letter D. Practice righteous judgment, just like we were talking about. 
Um, we are commanded to judge with righteous judgment. And so we first turn that upon ourselves and we evaluate our own hearts to see um, if there is sin and we seek to battle against that sin and to grow in holiness and in obedience to the law of God. And then if we do judge others, it is only out of love for them that we might assist them in loving and glorifying God more fully. And then lastly, letter E is wait for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We should not be hasty to make judgments while we were on this earth. We must remember that God is on the throne and he clearly sees all the thoughts, motives, and emotions of my own heart and mind as clearly as every other person. I am first accountable to him and to his law, and I must continually live according to that reality that I will one day stand before his judgment throne. It is better to leave judgment in God's perfectly just and authoritative hands rather than to forfeit the praise that I might receive from him by committing sinful judgment. So if we have now become aware of the defiant sins that slander and judging are against God and our spiritual family, let us repent and hunt down and uproot and destroy these sins in our hearts starting today. Whether we are guilty of judging and and or slandering our husband, our children, our extended family, our friends and acquaintances, fellow church members or church leaders, co-workers or even strangers, I'm thinking drivers on the road, if we are in Christ, we may arm ourselves with his word and cooperate with the sanctifying work of his spirit in our hearts so that we can begin to change today, begin to live in obedience right now. So my prayer is that we may all grow in greater humility and love, and especially in a greater fear and worship of the one true judge whom we will one day meet in eternity. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I um, just thank you once again for this opportunity to examine and learn from your word, to examine our own hearts. I ask that you would convict us of our sin and that you would humble us before you. I pray that we would always live in the knowledge um, of who you are, that we would live before you as in your presence. I pray that we would put off these sins of slandering and judging, knowing that they are dishonoring and displeasing to you and that they are harmful to our relationships with others. I pray that you would give us the strength through your word and through your spirit to 
um, battle the temptations to these things, to, that we would um, have the strength to not just struggle against them, but to overcome them and to walk in obedience. Um, I thank you again, Father, for your grace this morning, and I pray that you would bless our discussions in our small groups, that we would be able to help one another with these things. And um, Father, I just pray that you would receive all the glory this morning and um, ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.